take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. One of the most encouraging sounds for a teacher, a pastor teacher, is the turning of those pages. Why are churches today struggling? It's a broad question. Why are evangelical churches in America shrinking back and struggling to find their footing as they run into social and moral issues in our day? Evangelical churches, especially in North America, our, our brothers and sisters. Why are churches viewed now to be more of a social club rather than the body of Christ? Why are churches disorganized to the point almost of going out of existence in their local function. I mean, they're so loosely organized that you wouldn't really know they are a church. They almost won't look like they're not a church and still call themselves a church. Why is this going on in our day? Of all days, why is this happening? Well, I see it that this is caused by a lack of of leadership from godly pastors. In other words, this sermon is not so much at you, but at myself and at those others who are gathered here that are called pastors at Grace Fellowship. It's, it's easy to thunder at the crowd, and it's not as easy to remember what your mom always told you, that when you point one out... The others are pointing back at you. You see, because I think, and that's true of the church in general, I think we tend to really get focused on why is the world so bad and why is the world so disorderly, and we lose focus that our churches are so bad and so poorly ordered. And I think God would be pleased with us to focus on that, to say, hey, the culture is the culture. The culture doesn't dictate who we are. The Bible dictates who we are. God Himself has dictated who we are. So let's focus on ourselves. Let's look internally at ourselves in this way. Not so easily point the finger at the lost world, but rather see the fingers pointing back at ourselves. I think the biblical definition of a pastor is at least this. A man gifted to teach... Morally upright, respected in his community, and passionately living for Christ. This man gives mature, therefore the word elder, oversight, therefore the word bishop, to the church while teaching and leading the people, therefore the word in the Bible, pastor. Let me say that again. A man, that's important. A man. It is without question that the Bible teaches that pastors are men. They are not women. Morally upright and respected in his community. And passionately living for Christ. This man gives mature oversight to the church while teaching and leading the people as a pastor. 
we're getting ready to set Eric Davis apart for this very task. To say, we have tested, we have examined, we have put him through the approval of you as a church body. Here at Grace Fellowship, he will be set apart from this day forward as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an elder, as a bishop. All of those are the same. Same office. This is the fourth time in uh, our almost ten years of history that we have had this occasion. I want to read a letter from the very first time this happened. This letter was written by the elders at Anniston Bible Church. On February 13th, 2005, you might remember many of you were here, we set apart for the very first time elders at the Congregation of Grace Fellowship. Dear brothers and sisters of Grace Fellowship, one of the great needs of our time is for biblically qualified, spiritually competent leadership. We need men whose confidence and courage flow from faith in God. Our church fellowship is blessed indeed when their shepherds are called and qualified by God for the task of leadership. But all leadership in the church must flow from our great leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is our head and husband, the captain of our salvation, and the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He alone is our light and life, our prophet, priest, and king. The human leadership of the church must always bow to his authority and humble submission. It is with great joy that we join with you in recognition of the leaders God has given to your body. Deborah sang in Judges 5-2, When leaders led in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. We believe that God has graced your church with godly qualified men and has called you as a church to follow their faith, trust their wisdom, support them with your prayers and energetic service. There's more, but I'll stop there. The reason of reading that is the purpose of today is the same. This will be our sixth pastor. One of the surest signs that God is blessing a body is that he continues to add to their leadership qualified, called men to shepherd the flock he is entrusting to them. I think we can see direct correlation in the growth of this church with the growth of the number of pastors for this church. And so I expect a great ingathering. I expect you to struggle to find seats in this place. Not because of me, but because of God. Not because of the six elders, but because God will add to His church. And God will grow His church through the power of His Son and the magnificence of His gospel ordered underneath the earthly human leadership of men called, trained, set apart, morally upright, in good standing with those in their community, passionately living for Christ as examples, giving mature oversight to the church and leading the people through teaching the Word of God and praying for the people. We had a second ordination, which after Aaron and I were ordained here, Carlton Brown was ordained, and the third, Dave and Bruce, and today, Eric Davis. It's a sign of God's blessing on this congregation. And I want to bring you a sermon entitled, and this sermon, just so you know, uh, we, have, we have a large crowd here today, lots of people, but just so you know the order of this, this sermon is, I told Eric this before I started, this sermon is directly pointed at Eric Davis. 
You know all those Sundays that you thought, man, he was preaching to me. Today, you are right. This, this sermon is directly pointed at Aaron Acker and Carlton Brown and Bruce Haynes, who will listen to it later because he's not here. He knew it was coming, so he skipped. <laughs> Smart. And Dave Swinney and myself and the future elders that will come from you, God's people. This sermon is directed at you, God's people, secondarily because you are called to support this man and his family in this task. And you're called, if you're a man in this congregation, to strive after the same characteristics. You may not be equipped to be a pastor, but you are to go hard after the same qualifications, the same moral standards in your life as you follow his example. First Corinthians 11, 1 makes this perfectly plain when, he, when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's Paul the elder telling the church at Corinth, you have an example, I'm not perfect, but I am pursuing Christ, so follow me. And so that's kind of the order of this thing. The text in 1 Peter 5, verse 1 through 4 says, So, therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In this text, I just want to call it to your attention because I think it's obvious, but I want to make sure it's obvious. You see here all three functions of the office called elder. In the first verse, the word he exhorts who? The elders. And what is their task? To shepherd the flock, pastor, and oversee the flock, be a bishop. He says this to the same men. This is not three offices, this is one office. Okay? And notice this also that he says this not to one man in a local congregation, but multiple men. How do we know that? Look at verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the what? Elders among you. Plural elders. Not one, but several. More than one, multiple. And there's good reason for that. We'll talk a little about that later. From this text, I see three main things I want to say today. First of all, pastors must be men who know and walk with Jesus. Now, that seems, it, it seems basic, doesn't it? But I think it's often overlooked in our day. Our day, since the 1960s in America... And there's a reason for that historical time frame I'm giving. Um, some of you were alive. I, I was not, but I've read about it extensively. A shift happened corporately as a nation in the 1960s. A young man was elected president. President John F. Kennedy changed the office of president. The way he changed that was he appointed 
in all of his upper staff the best and brightest. You remember that? These best and brightest, as they were affectionately called, and one of the senior members of the Capitol said when told that by Lyndon Johnson, he turned and said, but Lyndon, I would prefer that these best and brightest had led as much as a family business in their lives before they try to lead our country. The shift that happened there was we went from leadership to management. And since then, in the business and corporate world and in the church, people have thought the best and brightest are those who manage and administrate. And we call them leaders. Let me say this clearly. Managers and administrators are not leaders. That may be a personality trait of a leader, but it does not make you a qualified leader, Eric, by being very organized and administrative. He doesn't say that in this text. He says something very different. Though the church is to be orderly, there's something else that he's exhorting these men and you and us to do in the church. First of all, he's exhorting us to know Christ. I don't care if you're the next great CEO in God's church. God doesn't need a CEO. He, what he wants in his church is a man who passionately loves his son. And not only passionately loves him, but knows him because he's walking with him on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. That's what God wants. How do I get that? Well, because he says we must know his suffering. Look what he says in the first verse. I'm exhorting you elders to witness, this is his witness, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as, and secondly, pastors who know Jesus will focus on Christ's glory. Peter says, I exhort you as an elder, as a fellow elder, and, notice the conjunction, and a fellow, you can say this, and as a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Let me just pause there and put this in context for us so that we're clear about this point. What I mean when I say know Jesus, I don't mean know the Jesus that you think you want to know, nor the Jesus that the culture thinks it knows, but the Jesus that is found for us in the pages of God's holy word. You can't know this Jesus By feeling an emotion alone. You can't know this Jesus from your perception of who He might have been. You must know this Jesus through the study of His Word. What must we know about Him? First of all, we must know His sufferings. Peter was one who knew the sufferings of Jesus. Peter had watched and witnessed as Jesus suffered. And he watched and witnessed as Jesus was arrested. And he watched and witnessed from a distance as he was put on trial. And even after his denial, it's not too much to think that Peter saw or was quickly told of the deep suffering of Jesus on the cross. And even if he didn't see it in person, he witnessed the result of it when Jesus stood before him with the others and said, Put your fingers 
in the nail scars and stick your hand in the pierced side. Peter knew the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. And if we want to be elders who bring glory to God, we must know his suffering. So Eric, you're not being called to an ivory tower where you will sit separate from all other men and you will pine away at great theological thought and figure out great managerial charts. You're being called to bleed, to sweat, to cry, to live a life of suffering. Paul said, I fill up the sufferings of Jesus. And elders are called to do likewise. Now, this was not just some object lesson for the deep future for these men. That word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 1, or so, and just for Aaron's sake, I will say this. Although therefore and so come from the same Greek word, the ESV doesn't do a very good job here because it should have said, therefore. Your NASB says, therefore, doesn't it? I just thought I'd give him that pleasure. Yes. But it is better than the NIV because the NIV just skips it all together. So the ESV, eh, the NASB got it right. Why is therefore so important? Well, it almost always is because it directs us to look up the page. It directs us to look up earlier in the passage. Based on what are you exhorting these elders, Peter, to know the sufferings of Jesus? Verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Do you see that? Do you see what He did in chapter 5 verses one, verse 1? What did He do? He repeated what He had said in chapter 4 to the whole body. And He made it unique to the elder. He said in the first part in chapter 4... Rejoice in so much as you share in Christ's sufferings. He's talking to all the people. And this suffering is a fiery trial. People were being burned for their faith. And Peter says, rejoice because you've been counted worthy to suffer in the suffering of Jesus. And you've been counted worthy in beholding and displaying the glory that will be revealed. That's what he says in chapter 4, chapter 5. Look what he says. Therefore, I exhort you as elders, being your fellow elder and fellow witness to the sufferings of Jesus and the glory that will be revealed. What is he saying, elders? You will be on the front line. Good elders will not run in the day of persecution. Good elders will be in the front of the line to be burned for their faith. Because leaders are not necessarily administrators and organizers, nor the best and the brightest. But when the hand of persecution falls, they take the blow for the people. They lay down their life like the Good Shepherd. And you say, well, that doesn't happen in the United States. Good thing Eric's being called into a nice, posh, suburban church here in the southern United States. We won't face this kinds of persecution. Now, I'm no predictor of the future, but I do believe we are inching there in this country. 
I believe there are issues on the table today politically that will, will and could become the vehicles for persecution. And we get little murmurs of it every now and then. Like when a general in the United States Army says that Christians are terrorists. And they are a threat to our nation's security. Like when they say that Christian churches should be, congressmen have said this, should be placed on the list of hate speech groups because they won't accept same-sex, so-called same-sex marriage. You're starting to see the vehicles that are being raised up to where they might say, you can't operate in that manner anymore. And Eric, when they do, guys like me and you can't run to the back and push the women and children to the front. We're not cowards. We're called to go to the front of the line. Because that's what Jesus did. Why did he do it? For the glory that would be revealed. We must not only know Christ in his suffering, but in his glory. And Peter knew Jesus in his glory. Don't you know that as Peter died upside down on a cross in Rome, that as his last moments of consciousness fleeted away from him, he must have at some point recalled the transfiguration. He must have at some point said, this is what Jesus was telling us when he took us on the mountain, me and James and John. James is, is dead, and John, he's old and dying, and here I am dying. And Jesus said, I'm showing you this glory because you're going to need it in the future. Don't tell anybody about it yet. When we come down, don't tell anybody. But in the day of your suffering, remember it. Just remember, I'm not calling you to die for no cause. I'm calling you to die for the glory that you see in me will be in you on that day. So we are to know Christ in his suffering as elders and to know his glory that will be revealed. And if we know his suffering, we will point people to his glory that is coming so they don't lose heart. Why are churches so weak, weak as pond water in our day? Because the elders that are shepherding them don't know the Savior in His suffering, so they can't point Him to the glory. They just know the glory of today. So many of us as pastors are so tainted with love for this world that we can't point people to the next. So many of us are preaching a message that is so contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's boiled down to if you do good, God will bless you with lots of big cars and big houses and you'll live a fat and happy life. And that kind of talk doesn't point people to the real Jesus. So Eric, never compromise your knowledge of who He is. Gain it through His Word and be willing to go to the front of the line and die. Be willing to go stand and die. Because you know him. Secondly, in this passage, we see that pastors must be men who accept the pastoral responsibility. They, they know who they're serving, and they willingly accept the responsibility of serving. We must shepherd the flock. That's what Peter says. He exhorts in chapter 5, verse 2. A, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What does it mean to shepherd? Well, it means to feed them, to feed them God's Word. First, hold your place in 1 Peter and turn to 1 Timothy, one of Paul's epistles. 
where he gives qualifications for those who are called overseers, these men that are elders and shepherds. He gives a long list of qualifications, okay? But look what he says. I want to read these uh, to you, and then I want to point out the one distinction of an elder among all the other men of the church. This is what all the church is to do as men. You are to be above reproach, verse 2. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You must manage your own household well, with all dignity, keeping your children in submissiveness. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You can't be a recent convert and lead because you will become puffed up and you'll be conceited and you'll fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, you must be well thought of by outsiders so that you may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's what God calls all men in the church to be aspiring to. That's what he says elders must have already gained is these qualifications. There's one that sets the man called elder, pastor, teacher apart from the rest of the flock. I didn't read it. I skipped it on purpose. Because Eric, unlike everybody else, you are called to be able to teach. That's not a word that means to stand and lecture. It means to live out the doctrine in such a way that you transfer that doctrine and teaching from your generation to the next. You must be able to pass on the faithful things which Paul said in the presence of Timothy so that Timothy would then therefore raise up godly, faithful men who would teach the same things. And as Jude says, the faith of the apostles would be passed down from generation to generation. That's the call of an elder that separates him from all other men. All men should be aspiring to fulfill those other things. But not everybody is gifted to teach. And that's not, that's not something that, I mean, you can improve in your teaching, okay? But you can't, if you're either a teacher or you're not. People either follow your life and are making you, seeing you, and, and, and mimicking you, and following you, or they're not following you and your teaching, okay? So, in Pete, when Peter says we have to be shepherds, he means we must feed the flock. How do we feed the flock? By teaching them. Hebrews chapter 13 Hebrews chapter 13 says in verse 7, the writer of Hebrews, talking about these elders, says, Remember your leaders, church, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What sets an elder apart, Eric, is that you have to lead by the word. And your life must match it in such a way that they can follow you to the outcome of your faith. Okay? So as a shepherd, you must feed God's flock. Secondly, you must protect God's flock. That's the second thing a shepherd, a good shepherd, does. He protects. How does he protect? Look at chapter, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. All this helps us understand what it means to shepherd. 
Acts 20, verse 28 through 31a. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In 1 Peter chapter 5, you will notice that he says, Elders are to shepherd the flock of God. I want to make sure we understand that this is not the elders' flock. This is God's flock. Acts chapter 20 makes that abundantly clear. Who are we overseeing? <clears throat> We're overseeing the church of God. It belongs to God. How does it belong to God? He purchased it with His own blood. Therefore, none of us can say this is our church. We can say we're part of this church and set apart to be under shepherds in this church. But whose church is it? The one who paid for it. Jesus Christ. God's church. It's God's. It's purchased. Okay, so what did he say? You're to have this oversight over the church. You're to care for the church. And, among, and from among your own selves... What, why are you caring for them? Because among your own selves will rise up men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now, the fact is that ravenous wolves rise up within the church. <clears throat> and the reason they're ravenous wolves is they seek to devour godly people with false teaching. And the elder must be acquainted with Jesus and his word in such a way that he can feed the flock so that the sheep automatically get nervous when they hear false teaching. They just know instinctively that doesn't sound right. And furthermore, the elder then must run again to the front and stand between the wolf and the rest of the flock and say, you're out of bounds. What you're saying is not in keeping with the gospel. You must protect, you must care, you must give oversight. So we're called to feed the flock. We're called to protect the flock. We're called to lead the flock. Second Timothy. If you look at Paul's pastoral letter to Timothy at the end of his life, Second Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> this is what he says. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave, must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is what it means to protect and lead God's flock and feed them. It's all based and centered around the Word of God. No man stands in the pulpit or in the platform or in front of you as a pastor teacher on his own authority. He stands on the Word of God. And that's all. Whatever power and authority God has given, He gives it through His Son in the Word. That's why practical managerial schemes just don't work in the church. I, I, I face it all the time. <clears throat> I sit with pastors and I hear things like, well, you know, your church could be more efficient. My, my antenna goes up at that point. The radars start twirling. Efficient? 
and I'll often just say, I, I mean, I may be wrong, but I don't think God created the church to be efficient. That, that usually gets them on their heels. What? Sure he did. N- no. God's church is fairly inefficient, and it always has been. Why? Because it operates like a family. Families are not efficient. Families are very inefficient. You notice that when you try to come to church on time, right? They're very inefficient. Because, listen to me, your children must know you love them before they will ever respect you, really respect you, really honor you. And love is messy. Love is not neat and in a box. Love comes in all shapes and sizes and all measures at different times and seasons. And patience is required. And endurance is required. And suffering is required. And correction is required. And examples are required. And all of this may take years. So when I hear guys talking about efficiency, I automatically know these guys have bought into managerial style in the church. It just doesn't work. People leave those churches. Now, they may also gain a lot of people, but typically it's a revolving door. People coming in the front, out the back, in the front, out the back. And if you just watch them over the years, they become ineffective in their efficiency. Also, the radar goes up when I get the bulletin in the mail that says, you can grow your church by 50 units in the next six months. Really? Oh, and there's lots of them. Because we've, again, we've boiled it down to consumerism in the church. We've said churches grow by the same process that the world's businesses grow. So let's just put the world's business models in the church and everything will be good. We'll gain people. And it's total disregard to this text and many other texts which say that the suffering of Jesus is the ground from which the church grows. His glory is its aim, not our glory. And that takes patient, enduring shepherding. Shepherding. Oversight. The word oversight, don't let it confuse you. That is not, again, that is not managerial. That oversight is relationship. That oversight is like a shepherd in his flock being attuned to the needs of his sheep. And he will leave 99 sheep and go after one sheep like the great shepherd does. And he will spend hours and hours and hours with one lost sheep. And our efficiency buddies will say, you're wasting your time. Cut the bait. Come back. Care for the 99. You'll see more results. But the shepherds among us say, I'm willing to die for that one sheep out there. I'm willing to sacrifice it all so that one sheep sees an example of Jesus' love for him and comes home. I'll patiently endure for that. Hours and hours of counseling, hours and hours of serving, hours and hours of prayer, hours and hours of study, all so that we might sit in front of people who often don't care and don't want to listen, but in the end we know it has eternal weight and eternal reward. This is the call of the shepherd. Not to be a manager, but to be one who knows Jesus. Not to be an administrator, but to be responsible for feeding and protecting and leading the people of God. We must maintain motivations and humility. The end, the check, because when you live this kind of life, 
Eric, what you're going to find is the temptation to be puffed up. <clears throat> the life of humility outwardly and service often leads to pride. Because you start saying, I'm better than everybody else. Man, I spent six hours studying last week on that one issue, plus my Bible study, plus my sermon. I met with 18 guys last week, and the rest of these people didn't do that. I, I did this, and I did that. The, the temptation of pride begins to rise. So we constantly have to not only know Jesus, suffer with Him and know His glory so we can explain that. We not only need to be feeding and protecting and leading God's flock, but we have to keep motivations in check. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Many good shepherds run afoul right here, and their lives end in shipwreck like Hermeneus and Alexander, who Paul says, I deliver over to Satan, that their bodies might be consumed, but that they might be saved. Why would he do such a thing? Because of pride, because of a lack of humility. And he addresses it, Peter does, right here. 2B says, you exercise this oversight not under compulsion. You don't have to be told to do it. You don't have to be made to do it. You willingly do it as God would have you do it. Not for shameful gain. Not for, not for gain is not what it says. It says shameful gain. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 5, 17 tells us plainly that those who rule well deserve double honor. They deserve to be paid. We're told by Paul in, to the Corinthians, do not muzzle the ox as he tries to treads out the grain. So it's not a wrong thing to have gain, worldly, monetary gain as a pastor. That's not wrong. But it is wrong for that to be your motivation. It is wrong to not ever check yourself and say, am I doing this as a job for a check? But eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. There will be countless opportunities for you, Eric, and for the rest of us to say, to listen to that temptation of, man, show them. Show them you're the leader. Rise up. Show them some strength. Show them some power. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to maintain a respectable demeanor. Not willing to quarrel with people, but patiently enduring as we teach the Word of God. Willingly. Brokenheartedly. Eagerly. This is the call to check our motivation. Third and finally, pastors must be men who shepherd for the great reward. We not only check our motivation, but we make sure our motivation is right. And our motivation is for eternal reward. This is something not often talked about in our day. But it's, I think, very biblical. We never need to lose sight of God's grace in fruitful seasons and in dry seasons. Verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why did Peter exhort the elders, as fellow elders, to be witnesses of the suffering of Christ and partakers of the glory that is to be revealed? Why did he say to them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercise painful oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock? Why is he saying this? Verse 4. Because when Jesus comes, who is the chief shepherd, you will receive an eternal crown of glory. 
That's not unlike the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 who says, I am even now being poured out as a drink offering before the Lord and I'm stretching and I'm straining to the finish line where I will receive the crown of glory that is laid up for me. The motivation has to be the right motivation. It is to receive the well done of our Savior. Paul says to, to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Be faithful to rebuke and exhort everyone among you. Why? So that when Christ comes, you will not be shamed, but rather be able to present to Him what He has done through your ministry. That's, that's the motivation. The motivation is Christ is coming, and I want to be found faithful. I want to be found as one who willingly and lovingly and even imperfectly served with a broken spirit before the people of God so that they were challenged to go. First, First Corinthians 3, Paul says unashamedly, I planted Apollos water and another gained the increase. We're not worried about that. You, know, you should never be offended when someone comes to Christ who you shared the faith with two, three, four times and they went somewhere else and heard the same message and got saved. You should be excited about that. You should never be offended when you share your faith with your neighbor and then your neighbor goes to another church. You should never be bothered by that. You should be thankful that God is giving increase wherever it goes. And you should be thankful when the season is dry. I sat with a pastor that I love, and he had had a long season of this dryness. And through tears, he said, I preach the same, I witness the same, I live the same, and nothing's happening. It's broken. Broken. All I can say to him in that day is, your king sees you. He judges, and he gives the final reward. So be faithful in season and out of season. Be faithful when they're coming in by the droves, and be faithful when it's been months since you've seen one come. Be faithful. Don't walk away. Your motivation is not the immediate, but the eternal weight of glory. The crown that he will give you on that day. This is an old story. Many of you know it. But it's still effective to drive home this point. This old missionary couple served for years in the heart of Africa. <clears throat> they were unknown to the world. They came to the end of their time as mission, missionaries, and they booked their voyage. Back then, they rode boats in the early 1900s, and they came to find out that on that same voyage, President Teddy Roosevelt was returning to the United States after a great hunting expedition. They came to the port a little trepidatious. They were a little overwhelmed. Really, they had come to a hard end, to a hard ministry. They were worn out. They were beat down. They were frazzled, as we like to say. And as they came to the port, there were all these happy and excited people gathered all around as people were boarding. People clamoring to hold and touch the President of the United States, who had been on a hunting expedition. There was nobody, no native no one who they had labored and given their lives to even cared enough to walk with them to their ship to send them away. They were all by themselves. They got on and they put their, car, their luggage away. They went into their, their room and just wept. 
And, and the man said to his wife, we have served faithfully all these years and nobody cares. Well, they made their trip across the sea and the whole trip they were reminded that the president was there. Everyone clamoring to see him, everyone wanting to see him when he ate, everyone wanting a moment to talk to him. He was a hero. He was a celebrity. They rode into, on the ship. They, they came out onto the decks and they looked into the harbor of New York and there were people lined in the harbor, signs made, bands playing. Because the president was coming home from a hunting expedition. No one was at the port for them. They waited for their luggage to come and they scurried off, a little shamefaced, head down, defeated. Again saying, we've done so much for God and His kingdom all these years and nobody cares. Nobody from our mission agency even cared to come and shake our hand after all these years. They found their apartment on the east side, on the lower east side of New York, and they just sat frustrated. And the man was whining. Men do that. I don't know if you women would say that about us, but we do. We whine. And she said wisely, she said, go to your room and pray and tell God your problem and see if he answers. Code, I'm tired of listening to you whine. Right? So he did. He went and prayed. He came out in a few hours and his face had changed. And she said, what happened? He said, I told the Lord. I didn't think it was right. I'd served all these years. I'd given up my whole life. I'd made very little money. I'd faced sickness. I'd faced death. I had served all this in the cause of his gospel. And I didn't think it was fair that the president went on a hunting expedition and came home and receives bands and fanfare. And I get nothing when I come home. And in his mind and in his heart, it's settled. As the Spirit said, you're not home yet. You will labor for hours. And you will serve until your hands bleed. And you will often get frustrated and think nobody cares. Remember, you're not home yet. Not in this life. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite theologians, dad served in the interior of Canada in several small churches. The biggest church he ever served was just a little over a hundred and he mourned that ministry until his son wrote a book about him and said that he was in ministry as a great theologian, world-renowned as this teacher because of his dad. You won't ever know the impact you're having while it's going on. It takes years to look back and see what God is doing. Sometimes we still never see it. I think about the fact that in December, December the 12th, 2010, my grandfather, E.G. Pounders, died. You know, <clears throat> you don't know him except for the stories I've told about him. He served 52 years as a pastor, mostly country churches, bivocational, many of them. He died on December the 12th in his bedroom by himself. Nobody. It's a man who, died, who held the hand of the dying and wept with their loved ones. And he died all alone in his bedroom. 
And in his funeral, I was just thought, looking out at the crowd before I preached, I thought, he went home. He wasn't by himself. The Lord was with him. And, and though the world will never know him, there will never be a book written about him, God knows. Your king is watching. So the life of a pastor is the life of constant paradox. You're called to be humble in the eyes of everyone. You're called to be a servant when everyone else will tell you to be served. You're called to give when all of your colleagues are taking. You're called to sacrifice when the truth is it's easier, it's easier to call others to sacrifice. The life of a pastor is a life of paradox for a reason. Because in that paradox is revealed, if done faithfully, the most loving and gentle of shepherds. His name is Jesus. Who came to the earth, the most glorious, humble, and broken. The most powerful, as a baby. (laughs) And in a poor family. As the king of kings, so he might serve everyone. As the one who never deserved to die, dying. If we live it faithfully, we will point them to the chief shepherd. And we will receive his reward when he comes. So my prayer for you today, Eric, is that you would feel the hand of God placing this call fresh on you. And that the mantle which you take up, you will see it as a great mantle of responsibility, yes, but of privilege. Okay? And we'll call you and Alicia and whatever number of kids are sitting in our presence. I say that because not all of them are in here. I don't see them anyway. If you'll come forward right here. We want to end our time. We're not going to sing the last song. I'm going to skip it. We want to end our time praying over you and your family. Okay? I, I did chuckle one time as I thought about Eric with seven children. It's not fair. You know, the, us with less children have less examples of whether we can manage our household well or not. It's not fair. You know, it almost makes you say, I should have had one and just stopped. <laughs> right? No, but Eric, it is because you have been set apart by God that we set you apart today. In the presence of this church, you are being called to be a pastor. And your family is being called to live that life with you in obedience to his call and an example of his living in and through you, okay? And so I want to ask the elders, the other elders that are present to come forward and lay hands on you. This is what the scripture says is to be done. We don't do this for deacons, not because deacons aren't important. Deacons are absolutely important. But the ordination of the church falls on the one who is the shepherd and lead, as the example of the church is. From Acts 6, they set apart men to do service in the church so they might give themselves continually to prayer and to the word. And that's what you're being uh, set apart for today, Eric, to give yourself to prayer for this body and to the word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we pray, we ask that you would place on Eric the sense and the knowledge of the mantle of one as an under-shepherd. 
May you yoke him to yourself in a fresh way. May he see you as his leader and as his example and as his savior and as his redeemer. And may he suffer and live in such a way as to bring great honor to your name. Lord, I pray that in this way he would serve and lead from a spirit of humility. A spirit of sacrifice, a spirit of brokenness. A spirit of joy, but a spirit of one grieving. A spirit of victory, and yet not triumphalism, but rather realistic understanding that in this broken world, victory is still out of reach, finally, until we come to your throne. Oh God, may you give him wisdom, and may you give him strength and endurance to pour himself into your word and pour your word into himself that he might pray and lead as one who knows you as one who suffers with you and points others to your glory give him clarity and give him strength Lord we pray for Alicia that she will help him in this task give her the ability to Live a life that reflects your glory as she raises her children, as she serves her household, and as she loves the other women in the church. I pray, God, that you would keep from her the temptation to gossip and keep from her the temptation to become overly anxious and keep from her the temptation to take the leadership role from Eric and keep from her, God, the feelings of, of insecurity. And Lord, make her secure in yourself. We pray for these children. Those who already know you personally and those who will know you in the years to come, we pray, God, that they would look to their Father and be able to see Christ, hear the gospel and know it. May they never be embittered to the church. May they see the church as their family. May they be accepted as family members. Oh, God, would you use us now as a body here at Grace Fellowship Rightly ordered, defending your truth, loving your name, and spreading your gospel. May you use us until you come again and we all receive the crown which you have laid for us in heaven. It is by your name that we ask these things, Jesus. And in your strength that we expect to receive them. Amen.